How good is it for uh, to be together? And I just want to clarify, I think everybody in this whole church should try out for the choir, except for Simon Walker. So, <laughs> but I was shaking my head. Um, there's a little bit of a joke about his singing. Uh, but the Lord does say, make a joyful noise. So, you know, we want to do that. Hey, um, my name is Patrick. If you're new um, and you're Zooming in, um, we are going to continue in our series in Colossians. And what haven't we been well served as we have been working and studying the book of Colossians? And today we're going to continue on. And um, so if you have your Bibles, can you turn to Colossians chapter 2? We're actually going to be looking at verses 11 to 15 this morning. But I think it would be appropriate to start at verse 9 because I think it will just help us understand the passage a bit better. So Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 9, and it says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Would you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its power. Thank you for its revelation of who you are and what you've done. Thank you that it reminds us of whose we are and who you are. Lord, this morning, would we have clear eyes, clear ears to hear from your Holy Spirit, and would all glory and honor go to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'd like to ask you at home, and I'd like to ask you here this morning, who are you? Seriously think about how you would answer that question. Who are you? Here's how John Harrison answered the question when he was asked by a patient in the hospital that he was visiting. John, uh, Thomas asked him, if I were to ask you who are you, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I'm a basketball coach, John says. And if God stripped away from you being a basketball coach, who are you? Well, I'm a husband and I'm a father. And God forbid that he should ever change that. Who are you? What is this? Is this some sort of a, is this a game? No, it's not a game. Who are you? The conversation continues. And John says, I am a American white male. And this patient is actually black. And he says, well, that's for sure. What else? And John says, well, um, I'm a Christian. And what does that mean? It means I'm a follower of Christ. And how important is that to you? It's very important. Interesting how it's so far down your list. Wait a minute. I could have very easily said Christian first. Well, but you didn't. Look, John, your identity will be tied to whatever your heart is tied to. Looks like God does not have first place. Are you calling me a bad Christian? 
let me be a little direct with you, he says. Last time you were here, you said that you'd pray for me. Did you? Uh, no. No? So someone who knows the Lord, who li- you live like someone who doesn't, which makes me wonder, what have you allowed to define you? When you lost your basketball team, it didn't just disappoint you, it devastated you. Something or someone will have first place in your heart. But when you find your identity and the one who created you, it will change your whole perspective. This morning, can I ask you, do you know who you are? Do you know your identity in Christ? You know, it is so easy to succumb to the cultural pressures and and place your identity in culture, religious practices, work performance, or a political party. Paul reveals in these verses for us this morning that there is a fullness that Christians can experience in Christ. Now, please understand, if you are a Christian, that fullness is yours. It's ours because we are in Christ. Well, how can I say that? Because if you look at verses 9 and 10, Paul reminds us that all the fullness of God dwells in Christ. His supremacy is extremely significant for the believer to know and to understand. Jesus Christ is the one universal Lord. And Christians, by identifying with him in faith, experience the benefits of his lordship. All that human beings can know or experience of God is found in Jesus. And simply because you are in him, you have access to all of this knowledge and the incredible experiences that are found in Christ. It truly is amazing because of the kindness of God towards us. You and I and all those who believed in Colossae and have followed up until now have come to fullness in Christ if we have confessed him as Lord. Now I've been thinking as I've been preparing this message, what's the one thing that I want you to go home with? If you walked away with anything, I want you to know how to answer the question, who am I? And here's the answer to the question. Because of Christ, you have been made new. If you have put your faith in him. Because of Christ, we have been made new. And so I've got two points for us this morning as we work through this passage. The first point is, who am I? And the second point is, what does that mean? So who am I? What does it mean? Let's look again at verse 11 as we look at, who am I? Verse 11 starts, in him... Also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting, to the, uh, putting the body of, uh, of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. I read that and I thought, oh, whoa, that is deep. But let's go through that slowly. In him, you were what? You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, putting off the body of flesh circumcision of Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul was many things, but one of the things that he wasn't was politically correct. He rarely shied away from using graphic and often gruesome language if he thought it was going to be effective in making a point. So especially if he thought it would help people understand. 
Now, have you ever considered how two little divinely inspired words could actually enhance your understanding of who you are? Right there at the beginning of verse 11, it says, in him. I think Paul knows that this, uh, I think Paul knows this and he wants to help his fellow Christians amidst the cultural pressures they face understand, understand that it's in him. Christ, you, the Colossi believers, were circumcised. Now let me take you through each um, phrase um, individually, and hopefully this will help you see how this impacts your identity. So first of all, it says that in him you were circumcised. Let's just look at were circumcised. Now physical circumcision was a token or a seal of the covenant that God made with Abraham and his seed. And you can read about that in Genesis 17:1 to 14. It was this distinctive sign. Um, it was like an ethnic badge, so to speak, of an Israelite in covenant relationship with Yahweh. But it was always intended to symbolize an inward, altogether spiritual cleansing and purification from sin. Now, when Paul declares that we were circumcised, he's referring to our conversion. In other words, we experienced a spiritual circumcision of the heart at the time of our regeneration. That is what Paul has in view when we go back to Romans 2, 28 and 29, where he writes that true circumcision is not outward and it's not physical, but it's a matter of the heart. It's by the spirit. And he also comments, comments on this in 2 Corinthians and in Philippians. So that is, we're circumcised. That's what that means. You were circumcised and he's referring to our conversion. But then Paul goes on to describe the circumcision as one made without hands. Now, the Greek word that is used here was typically used in the New Testament to contrast what was made by humans with what was made by God. It also points to the contrast between the external material aspects of the older, um, the older order of Judaism under the Mosaic Covenant and the internal spiritual success of the new order under the new covenant. So to speak of something not made by human hands or made without hands is to claim that God himself has created it. So, as in the case of that when Jesus says, um, this temple will be built in three days, as well as in a heavenly house, i.e. a body which believers receive at death. So, Paul's point is that the circumcision that is performed in the flesh with human hands is no longer the real or spiritually meaningful circumcision that seems to be really clear when we look at Galatians 5 and 6. For in Christ Jesus, uh, and for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So made without hands, and then we go to the next part of verse eleven, where he talks about putting off the body of the flesh. What does that mean? This is most likely a reference to the physical body and death of Christ Himself. The only other place this phrase appears in the New Testament is in chapter 1, verse 22 of this letter, where it refers to the physical body of Christ 
And then there's three other times in this letter where flesh is referred to, and that's in chapter, in verse 24 of chapter 1, and chapter 2, verse 1, and verse 5. So then this putting off of the body of the flesh, it doesn't um, refer to the believer's experience, but to the violent stripping away of Christ's physical body in the death on the in his death on the cross. So when you combine though that that statement made without hands and add on to that by the circumcision of Christ, we see that the body of the flesh was stripped off when Christ was circumcised. That is when he died. And so it's a really gruesome picture, but it is a figure of death. It's a gruesome figure of death here that Paul is actually presenting. Here is a circumcision which entailed not the stripping off of a small portion of flesh, but the violent removal of the whole body in death. So, let's go then a little bit further down to this in, um, the end of verse 11. When Paul refers to the circumcision of Christ, he does not mean that this, this is a circumcision that took place for an infant at eight days old, like we read in Luke 2.21, or we learn about in Luke 21. But it has a view in view the literal death of Christ. In other words, Paul envisions the crucifixion itself as a circumcision. So, it's not a pleasant imagery, and these are not easy words, but it gets the point across. It's not by human hands. It's not by, so it's not by our good efforts or our good intentions or our reformed life, but by the Spirit of God that our hearts have been um, circumcised and renewed and regenerated unto life eternal. So, in Him... You were circumcised, Colossians. Not outwardly, but inwardly. It was in his body on the cross that he endures on our behalf a stripping, a cutting off of the whole body in death. A whole body of sin and rebellion dies. What's so striking is that this was done to the one who's the head of all rule and authority, verse 10. This is the one whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. His body endured that stripping. And for those dear saints in Colossae who are being influenced to resist Jesus by them understanding that because of Christ, they have been completely new. And being understanding that they have been new um, ought to help them know how, who they are. But it's easy to forget this, especially when being pressured by cultural influences. I wonder, are you prone to forget the full, complete work that has been done for you through Jesus Christ? Because when we forget who we are, we don't live. We don't live as the sons and daughters of the great king. When we forget who we are, we don't tell others who we are because we even aren't fully sure what this means. And Paul uses circumcision to help the Colossians understand the death of Jesus, the stripping off of the flesh, the circumcision of the heart. And Paul wants these readers to see that in him, 
You have been made new. But then he goes on to verse 12. Look with me at verse 12. Our second point is, so who are you? You are in him. Now look at verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, to which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Having been buried with him in in baptism, Again, we see those two small little words, divinely inspired, that we can so easily move on from. Now, obviously, in the Greek, it's one word. It's not. It's in English, it's two words, the with him, in him. But in the um, Greek, it's just one word. But it's these two divinely inspired English words, this one divinely inspired Greek word that we can easily move on from. What Paul is trying to help us, what is he trying to help us see in this verse? With him, the supreme Christ, whom the whole fullness of God dwells bodily, who is the head of the church, has all rule and authority over all creation. You are with him when he, what, when you are with him when he did what he did on your behalf. Paul wants these Colossae saints and those who follow to understand the fullness and completeness of his supremacy. And I think Paul is wanting to remind them of who they are, and he's doing that by talking now about baptism. And the baptism that is mentioned here is not physical. It's, it's, not, it's not a physical water baptism, but a spiritual baptism by the Holy Spirit. I think it's also helpful to note that for Paul, spiritual circumcision and spiritual baptism are synonymous. The outward sign of the covenant in the Old Testament was physical circumcision. But the covenant was only valid to those who were spiritually circumcised in heart. In the new covenant church, water baptism is the outward sign and the seal of the covenant which is made valid to those who truly believe. Friends, it's very important to have a biblical understanding of the word baptism as recorded in the Bible. You know, some baptisms are wet, as John's baptism of repentance. Other baptisms are dry, such as the baptism of the Spirit. When we have placed our faith in, and when we have been placed in the spiritual family of God at salvation is when that baptism takes place. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink one spirit. So whenever you see the word baptism in the Bible, it simply means to be placed into. Water baptisms, they are a beautiful outward illustration of the supernatural spiritual baptism, that inward change of heart when a man or woman has trusted Christ for his salvation. The baptism of the Spirit is a single event in the life of a believer which takes place the moment one is born again and becomes a member of Christ's body. From, the point, from that point on, we are exhorted to be filled day by day with the Spirit of God. So, why is with Him so important? Well, it's important to know that the moment that we are conceived or we're born into the human race, we are described that we're in Adam. As his offspring, we are identified with Adam. 
One could almost say that we're baptized into Adam or placed into the family of Adam's birth. So, for example, when the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea and they were baptized into Moses, they were identified with Moses. 1 Corinthians 10.2 tells us that. So it means that the people of Israel were identified with Moses. In Exodus 33, we read that when they were led by the uh, the pillars of cloud by day and also when they crossed the sea on dry ground, they were in Moses. Israel received these benefits because they were connected with Moses. They were identified with Moses. They were one with Moses. They were baptized into Moses. What's the point? The point is because we're identified with Christ's death and buried with him in in baptism, we also will be raised up together with him because of our faith in the working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. Let me ask you a question. Did you know that the spiritual nature of our salvation, where we are baptized into the body of Christ by faith, is outwardly demonstrated when we go into the waters of baptism? Immersion into the water is a picture of our co-burial with Christ, while coming up out of the water illustrates our co-resurrection with him. All is carried out in the power of God who enables us to live a new life in Christ as we die to the old life and live for Christ. Thought. You know, I try to, um, when I'm studying a letter, I try to imagine the author. And, you know, let's not forget, Paul is in chains. He's in prison. Um, You know, imagine an old, old prison. Um, It's cold. It's damp. It's dark. Chains are possibly around him. He might have a desk. um, But imagine Paul in a cell. And he has a visitor. This visitor is Epaphras, the church planter of Colossae. And he gets an appointment with Paul in prison. And he comes in. And imagine the two of them sitting, talking together. And Paul hearing about Colossae Christians. He's never met the Colossians. And here he's hearing from Epaphras, look, this is how the church plant's going. Oh, these saints are doing really well. Um, These people are coming to Christ. These people are getting baptized. And I imagine Paul being greatly encouraged. And then I imagine Paul being very pastoral and saying, Epaphras, what are some of the challenges that the Colossians are facing? And Epaphras begins to explain to Paul some of the challenges that we're facing are cultural challenges. Our people are being pressured by outside influences. They're being encouraged to return to worshiping their Greek gods or the Roman gods or, you know, the ways of the um, old um, Judah, uh, not old, um, but the ways of Judaism where you're following the law. And I can imagine Paul praying for Epaphras and encouraging him and thanking him for serving them, those people and preaching the gospel to them. And as Epaphras leaves, he hasn't forgot. And he thinks about how do I encourage these Colossians to continue on. I wonder if he's writing thinking, I know you'd be tempted to conform to cultural pressures, to return to your old ways of living, but don't move on from the full and complete work of the supreme Son of God. Don't do it, Colossians. He is everything you need, and everything that he has done is fully and utterly complete. You don't need to perform anymore. Remember who you are. You're in him and you're with him. 
You've been buried with him in baptism. You've been raised with him in power. His power is amazing. This power raised Jesus from the dead. Don't forget who you are. Are you here this morning or are you listening this morning? And maybe you feel outside pressures. Maybe you actually are like the Colossians and you might be tempted to doubt in the full supremacy of God and his full work. You might feel embarrassed even if you are a follower of Christ, but you're wrestling through. Is this true? I would say to you, welcome. Welcome to being a follower of Jesus. Because in his grace, we have this word. Paul, he wasn't irritated. He wasn't discouraged. He writes and says, look. Look back to the circumcision. Look back to baptism. Paul is writing because he's wanting to remind the Colossians of who they are. And he's doing, about, he's doing it by talking about baptism. Look with me what else Paul says, seeks to do to help these Colossians understand who they are. So they're in him, they're with him. Look at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. You who were dead in your trespasses, You were. What beautiful words. You once used to be, but no longer. Simon, you were dead. Who are you? You're no longer dead, but you're made alive. God made you alive. And here in this verse, Paul is accentuating our reconciliation by highlighting the significance of our being made alive with Christ and bringing it to the front, bringing to the front our condition. What was your condition? Dead. Dead. Walking around in orange jumpsuits, waiting to be executed with no hope. How do you answer the question, who are you? I so desire for you to walk away this morning knowing who you are. I wonder, though, if you answered the question honestly, and what if you did say, you know what, according to Scripture, I, uh, I might be dead. What will you do? Do you think I know what you're talking about? I want to ask you, do you wonder, well, how do I know if I'm dead? How do I know? Can I ask you, are you afflicted inside? Are you weighted down, perhaps a sense of shame? Do you tend to hide because of past dealings with others? Is lying, stealing, deceiving, sexual immorality, fits of jealousy, uh, fits of anger, jealousy, rivalries, dissension, division, drunkenness, envy? Is that a, part, a common practice in your life? You don't have to live that way. There's another way. And Paul describes our previous state as one of death. I once was dead. I was spiritually dead. And this dead state I had spiritually, Paul calls it spiritual death. It is a spiritual death. And this death is a sense that Paul uses um, the word here in Colossians referring especially to condemnation. 
A present state afflicts all humans in their natural state of Adam's original sin. Turn with me, um, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 5, and I want to read verse 12. This is what Paul says. Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. This spiritual death, this dead state. But then if you jump down to verse 18, he goes on to say, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Hear Paul. You were... You were, but you were no longer. You have been made alive. That's who you are. One man's sin, one man's act of righteousness. Because of Christ, that act has made you new. Because of Christ, if you don't know him, you can be made new. I want you to see and the fullness that, is, that, that Christians can experience because we are in Christ. So who are you? You're in Christ, you're with Christ, and you have been made alive. Now what does that all mean, my second point? What does it all mean? In short, it means fullness. Fully, completely, nothing owing, totally, utterly, nothing else is required. In Christ, all things are completely new. And this fullness includes a victory over sin. If you go back to verse 11, we see here that you were circumcised. What does that mean? So it's who you are, so you're in him. But what does in him mean? I want to explain something to you. Jesus always works from the inside out. From the spiritual to physical. From the heart to the body. And in this way, the outward becomes a picture of the inward. You know how Paul used um, circumcision as a metaphor for the transition from the old life to the new? It's helpful to understand that this takes place at the moment, at the moment of each person's personal conversion. That is what is in view the moment when one is circumcised by Christ. That sinful nature is put off. At that moment. You see, the basic gospel message that Paul claims is that Christ died for our sins. That's the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Memorize those verses. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. And then it's in Romans 6 that Paul teaches us that it's through identification with these three key redemptive historical events that Christians have been set free from sin because they've died with Christ, they've been buried with him, and they will be united with him in resurrection, in a resurrection like his. And at the same time, Paul explains how with baptism, believers are identified in Christ Jesus. In Romans, I'm going to read this passage for you here in Romans chapter 6. 
Paul is explaining how baptism with believers has identified in Christ Jesus. And remembering, we're looking at what what does this mean for us. Listen to these verses. For if we have been united with him in death like like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Let no sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been bought Brought, excuse me, from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, just to be clear, the metaphor Paul uses here in second in, in Colossians 2.11 by the circumcision of Christ is a representation of a conquering of the power of sin that takes place when a person comes to Christ. Perhaps the reason Paul is explaining this is to affirm that Christ's circumcision fully provides for that subduing, that bringing under control of the flesh, which the false teachers were advocating elaborate and strenuous rules. So what does it mean? Does this mean if I'm not a Christian, uh, um, that if I'm a Christian, I still struggle with sin? Does this mean I'm not a Christian if I still struggle with sin? No, it doesn't mean that at all. If you're struggling with sin, you are being sanctified. If you have confessed Jesus as Lord, sin has no rule over you. Hebrews 10, if you get a chance this week, have a read through Hebrews 10, 11 through 23 in your quiet times. But who are you and what does it mean? You are in him, you're with him, you've been made alive. What does it mean? Victory over sin. Jesus' victory over sin is for you. And that's what your identity means. But it also means new life. In verse 13b, God has made us alive, we read. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. He has made us alive in him. He's given us new life. He has forgiven us. Someone once said that that before we saved we need to they need to be lost let me say that again before we get people saved we have to get them lost there's a lot of truth in that statement the fact is our society has virtually lost all sense of sin what good is it to speak of salvation to those who have no awareness of alienation from god or legal responsibility of his righteous wrath Paul describes two glorious elements in our salvation here in this verse. And he highlights that being made spiritually alive and having our sins forgiven 
But before those concepts can mean anything to us, he first portrays our condition before and apart from Christ. First, we were dead in our trespasses. The second, we were in debt. And God infinitely beyond our capacity to pay. The word transgressions means like a false step. It's a blunder, a crossing over a known boundary. And Paul says we were dead. We were dead in our transgressions, which is to say because of or by reason of our transgressions, we were dead. His point is to highlight the, st- the, the, um, the condition of our spiritual death in which people suffer. And there's a guy by the name of George Whitfield who describes this so well. So I'm going to read this quote to you. We don't have the screen for you this morning, but I'll read this to you. George Whitfield describes our state this way. He says, come ye dead, Christless, unconverted sinners. Come and see the place where they laid the body of the deceased Lazarus. Behold him laid out, bound, hand and foot with grave clothes, locked up and stinking in a dark cave with a great stone placed on top of it. View him again and again. Go near to him. Be not afraid. Smell him. Ah, how he stinketh. Stop there. Pause a while, and whilst thou art gazing upon the corpse of Lazarus, give me leave to tell thee with great plainness, but greater love, that this dead, bound, and tomb stinking carcass is but a faint representation of thy poor soul in its natural state. For whether thou believest or not, thy spirit which thou bearest about with thee, sepulchred in flesh and blood, is as literally dead to God and as truly dead in trespasses and sin as the body of Lazarus was in the cave. Was he bound hand and foot with grave clothes? So art thou bound hand and foot with thy corruptions. And as a stone was laid in the sepulchre, sepulchre, so it is there a stone of unbelief upon thy stupid heart. Perhaps thou hast lain in this state not only four days, but many years, stinking in God's nostrils. And what is still more affecting, thou art as unable to raise thyself with this loathsome dead state to a life of righteousness and true holiness as ever Lazarus was to raise himself from the cave in which he lay so long. Thou mayest try thy power of thy own boasted free will and the force and energy of moral persuasion and rational arguments, which without all doubt have their proper place in religion, but all thy efforts exerted with never so much vigor will prove quite fruitless and abortive till that same Jesus who said, take away the stone and cried, Lazarus, come forth, also quicken you. Friends, please make no mistake. Paul is not saying that people are born alive and gradually through sinning experience a slow process of spiritual and moral degeneration and eventually consummates into death. No, all people are born dead, remain dead until such time as God sovereignly infuses life and brings them by his spirit to faith in Christ Jesus. What does that mean for you? If you are in Christ, it means you have new life. God has made you alive together with Christ. Were ever more precious words uttered? Spiritually lifeless, morally decayed, in every way insensible to the beauty and sweetness of Christ until God, in sovereign mercy and grace, made us alive together with his Son. Praise God. 
Can you see what your new identity in Christ means? Full and final forgiveness and protection. This fullness finally includes full and final forgiveness and protection from the power over evil angels. And if you look with me at verses 14 and 15, Paul writes, By counseling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. The forgiveness that we enjoy in Christ is total. All of our sins are forgiven. The completeness and the definitiveness of our forgiveness are the theme of verse 14, which Paul presents by striking two word pictures. The first word picture is an IOU. An IOU in which we pledge have pledged complete allegiance to God, and yet our sins stand as conclusive evidence that we have failed to give God that allegiance. And so that document is against us. It condemns us. But God has taken that document and wiped it clean. Indeed, he has taken it completely out of the picture. So that's the first image. And the second image is a hammer and a nail. The completeness of the removal, and that means by which it was accomplished, a hammer and a nail to the all-supreme one. It is well with my soul. Verse 3 says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. What is wiped out? The charge of our legal indebtedness. Picture this, a manuscript recording human deeds. And it's brought out as a basis for judgment in the heavenly court against you. Christ has taken upon himself the penalty that we are under for our disobedience. And his death is fully, has fully satisfied God's necessary demand for due punishment of that disobedience. And here we see Paul's conclusion of how it has been brought to fullness in Christ. In verse 10, Paul stated that Christ is the head. He's the head, the powers and authorities, and the head of the spiritual powers. And now he's about to show how the headship has been expressed as God, through the cross of Christ, has won the victory over the rebellious powers. Verse 10 and verse 15, they complement one another in the same way as do the earlier verses where spiritual powers are featured. Paul used a rare verb here that, he, uh, that means disarmed or stripped off or taken off. It's like your clothes have been taken off. And it was at the cross that Jesus disarmed, he took off the clothes, and that, by doing that, disarmed the rulers and authorities. But it was in Christ's resurrection and ascension that God put on this public display the reality, that the reality of the victory of power over the powers. So there is this relationship between the forgiveness of our sins and the disarming of the powers. There is a classic view of atonement that you might be aware of. It's this connection between what seems to be seen in the power of Satan and his minions and that they hold over human beings because of their sin. God pays the debt that we all owe to Satan because of the sin and the provision of Christ. 
Now, we wouldn't want you to adopt that questionable concept that God had to buy Satan off in some sense. That's not what we see here. But we can imagine the false teachers in Colossae feeding that type of thinking, uh, feeding the widespread ancient, feeding widespread ancient various celestial spirits, um, insisting that believers needed to follow their own rules-oriented procedure for finding freedom from the power of the spirits. But in response, Paul insists that God, by sending Christ on the cross, was the final and definitive means to take care of the sin problem. And that was removed, and that has removed all power and these evil spirits that these evil spirits may have over us. You see, this victory celebrated and displayed in the resurrection and the ascension of Christ is what believers need to grasp as their own. Christ's authority over the rulers and authorities has been decisively manifested in him. Believers share that authority because we are in him. In closing, conclusion, I believe wants us to see that as his child, your identity matters. Who are you? You're in Christ. You're with Christ. You've been made alive. What does it mean? It means that you have victory over sin because of Jesus. Jesus has victory over sin. What does it mean? It means you have new life. What does it mean? It means full and final forgiveness and protection from the power of evil angels. After Coach Harrison learned the significance of his identity, he wanted to teach his team members about who they were, and he wanted them to be able to answer, who are you? He asked one of his students, and they replied this. They replied, I'm created by God. He designed me, so I'm not a mistake. His son died for me just so I could be forgiven. He redeemed me, so I am wanted. He shows me grace just so I could be saved. He has a future for me because he loves me. So I don't wonder anymore, Coach Harrison, I'm a child of God. How will you reply, friend? If you know him and you are in him, can I encourage you to continue to rehearse and rehearse and never tire of these truths and tell other people about who you are? And if you don't know him, Ask him to be your Lord and invite him to be your Savior. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. And right then and right there, you have been made in him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this incredibly wonderful passage. Thank you that you have gone to such lengths to make us uh, to make us who we are to make us your own and it's not because of what we do it's because of what Christ has done and so lord would it be that when we're asked who are you we could say because of Christ i've been made new lord for those of us for those who don't know you for our family and friends who we are we're aware that their spiritual state is death lord would you please rescue them Would you please save them? Would you please use us to live out who we are? Lord, would we have the confidence that because of Christ, we're in you. We're with you. We've been made alive. You're coming again to take us to be with you. And Lord, one day that book is going to come out with all of our deeds. But because of Jesus, we're going to be told that one.
one's mind. Lord, thank you. Thank you for Paul taking the time to help us see your supremacy. Lord, would we not grow tired of hearing these truths in Jesus' name.